0: Welcome to the ASCD Connect Podcast, supporting you on your journey as a life-changing
1: educator. Here's your host for today's program. Hi everyone, I'm Anthony Rabora, the editor-in-chief of ASCD's educational leadership. Instructional coaching has gained increasing prominence as a professional development strategy. But what role should coaching play now as schools work to address the complex after effects of the pandemic? How can coaches improve in their practice, and how should they view their work with teachers? And How can schools better support them? For answers to these questions, I'm joined today by Jim Knight, one of the foremost experts on instructional coaching. He's the founding senior partner of the Instructional Coaching Group and the author of numerous books, including The Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching. He also writes the Learning Zone column that appears in every issue of Educational Leadership. Welcome Jim, it's great to have you back on our program.
0: It's great to be here, Anthony. I hope you're doing well.
1: You too. So as you know, there's a great deal of focus in schools right now on accelerated learning or making up instructional gaps or equity gaps, as well as on getting new teachers up to speed because of all the turnover in the profession. What's your advice to school leaders or to coaches themselves on the role of instructional coaching during this intense period in education?
0: Well, the first thing I would say is you have to be careful not to go for quick fixes because quick fixes aren't quick. What happens when you do a quick fix is you don't solve the problem and then you end up back at the problem. And those people who are trying to solve it have a little less motivation. Each quick fix erodes the likelihood of getting to the fundamental fix. And so you need to do something that's a fundamental change, not a quick fix. So what that entails is having effective coaching, setting real goals, really accomplishing those goals and and addressing the most important things, not trying to do it in a quick way because the quick ways will make things worse. So a workshop is not gonna change the attitude of teachers around, say, an issue like equity. You're gonna have to get in and do some deep work and think it through and think about their assumptions, change their practices,
1: and that doesn't happen quickly. So you gotta watch out for those shortcuts or the tendency to take shortcuts.
0: Right, my little catchphrase is quick fixes aren't quick. They actually make things worse. And you wanna solve the problem, you want to come up with some quick, simple solution to get you there, but
1: you really need to take the time to do things right. Yes, that's good advice for this time period. So, how does somebody, in your experience, become an effective instructional coach? So, I assume that not every great teacher is a great coach. So, what makes the difference in your view? Like, how do educators who become coaches become really good at their work?
0: Well, I, I've been in teaching for a long time. So, that means I think in Venn diagrams. And so, I want you to imagine four circles overlapping. and one thing would be a set of beliefs that guide the practice of the coach. We would say those beliefs should position you as a partner with the teachers. Most people don't want to work with someone who talks down to them or puts themselves up here and puts them down here. Most professionals want to be treated as professionals, treated as equals whose voices matter. So the first thing is the beliefs. The second thing is the coaching skills you have, which really comes down to listening and questioning. I always like to say that listening and questioning are to coaching like skating is to ice hockey. You really can't play the game unless you are good at it. And people think they're good at it, but it takes a lot of work to really become a skilled listener and to ask really good, effective questions. And it's a big part of the book, The Definitive Guide, is to pin those things down. The third thing is you need some kind of conversational framework. So an effective coach has to have a process, a structure they can move through. For us, it's what's called the impact cycle, but there's other structures you could use. But there needs to be a way in which you create the situation where a person can thrive, where they can set their own goals. Instead of trying to give goals to somebody else, you should create the conditions for people to set the goals that matter to them. And that means you need a framework that's efficient for us. It's the impact cycle. And the last part is I think an instructional coach who's focused on instruction has to have strategic knowledge. They have to know what effective instruction looks like. They they need to know how to gather data. We say you need an instructional playbook that is a few, maybe 20 core high impact teaching strategies, and then you're able to gather data that becomes the goals and the ways of measuring progress in the process. So those four things, your your way of being, your set of beliefs, that's one, your coaching and communication skills, that's another, your communication structure, so you're efficiently helping teachers set goals and hit the goals, and then the fourth thing would be the strategic knowledge
1: you have. So really a holistic effort. I want to get back to what you said about listening. So in your recent columns for EL, you've had an emphasis on listening and careful, attentive communication in coaching and in in school improvement generally. So do you think that has become more central in your work or in your view? I don't know if it's more central, but I
0: would say I'm increasingly convinced that um, life is short and we only have limited amounts of time. And most of that time is spent in conversation. And to me, listening is a profound way of communicating respect for the other person to see the value of the other person to learn. And then questions are the the catalyst for that listening. and asking, you can ask questions that build connection that invite people to think deeper that um, communicate our respect for the other person, help us learn together, promote deep thinking. And so to me, Listening and questioning are are really important because they're fundamental to conversation. And I don't think I'm anywhere near the conversationist I'd like to be. I would really like I would write every conversation I have with another person to be a life giving conversation. Until every conversation is like that, I still need to do a lot of work. And I got a lot of work to do because you know you have ingrained patterns of habit. But I would say first off. To me, the, the main reason I'm interested in listening and questioning is probably a life issue, not a not a coaching issue. But having said that, you can't really effectively coach unless you, you listen effectively and you ask effective questions.
1: Right. So it's a life skill and a coaching skill. I want to get back to that. But I also want to talk about you do focus a lot on the notion of working in partnership or dialogue with teachers as an equal partner, as opposed to being in a more directive role. So and I know I've asked you this before, but what are the dangers of an experienced coach simply telling teachers what to do, especially right now when schools are under great pressure to get things done quickly?
0: Well, I'd be all over just telling people what to do if I thought it led to changes that have an unmistakably positive impact on kids' lives. What I want is what's the most efficient and effective way to bring about the deepest change that's going to have lasting impact on that teacher's life so that every student they ever teach is in a better situation. And the trouble with uh, telling people what to do is literature on motivation is pretty clear. Most people don't like to be told what to do. First off, we assume our advice is better than it is. And we assume other people want the advice more than they do. But the truth is, unless the person works it through themselves, they're probably not going to hold on to it. They're probably not going to implement it. The other thing is coaching, I like to say, is about now and it's about not yet. And well, maybe you can tell this person something to do now, but you're not helping them become a more effective, deeper thinker, more reflective practitioner, you're solving the problem for them. Whereas what a coach should do is be helping them solve the problem. And just in practical terms, unless the person owns the goal and cares about the goal, it's not going to happen. And if you give it to them and tell them what to do, probably the best you can hope for is compliance. But if the person assesses the situation and sets their own goals, there's way more likelihood that they'll have a deep level of commitment. I mean, you want them to set a goal that they really, really want to hit, that they really care about. You want them to identify strategies they're really going to implement. And if somebody tells them what to do, the chances of them doing it are are like really caring deeply are pretty, pretty low. Most of us don't want to be told what to do. And the way I talk about it is that change happens from the inside out and not from the outside in. It's rare that somebody tells me they made a big change in their life because somebody told them to do it. People make a big change in their life because they want to change their health or they want to change their relationships or they want to be a better parent or they want to reach more kids or they want to be equitable in the way they teach. There's something inside that happens. It's rarely they do it because people, I do this, have thousands of people answer this question. So far, nobody's ever said to me, the major changes I made as a professional or in my life, I did because my principal told me to do it. They do it because of something inside. And I, I, I would say... <laughs> Getting fired up here that I think we've I think we've got professional development backwards. We think the thing to do is go in and tell the teacher what to do and then make them do it. So we set up these workshops about best practices and the teachers go to the workshop. They're not negative about it, but they're go and they're interested, but they can't really see how it fits. They don't see a driving purpose behind it. And they might try a little bit, but they don't go deep. But then the, then the professional developers, the administrators, come disappointed in the resistance of the teacher. They're not really resisting. They just don't know how it works. you do it the other way around, where the teacher identifies a goal they really want to hit, an emotionally compelling goal that's really going to make a difference for kids, that the coach helped them develop it. Then you say, which teaching strategies could you use to hit the goal? Then you get a high degree of implementation. But you try to force them to do it, and then you set in more and more draconian methods of making sure they do it, you're you're probably going to engender way more resistance to implementation. When when teachers are not implementing the practices, it's not because of the teacher. It's because of the design of the professional development. Because you watch a teacher teach first hour and seventh hour, it's different every day because teachers are learning all the time. They want to learn, but they don't want to be treated like children. They don't want to be put in the one down position. And they want to have a say and They want to focus on the things that they can see every day their kids need. And when you start with the inside out versus outside in, you're probably going to get a lot different kind of implementation.
1: Yeah, that's a a great message. Um, So from reading your work, I get the sense that you see instructional coaching as having like a deep ethical component or as being a reflection of how we ideally want to live in interaction with others. Is that a fair interpretation?
0: Well, the only part I would say is not fair is I really believe people have to decide for themselves what it is that they do, and so I I wouldn't want to tell a coach this is what you have to do or a teacher this is what you have to do. I think there are cases where you do that. I think uh, you know if a teacher is using microaggressions in the classroom, sarcastic, bullying kids, you have to speak up. Or or in a team meeting, if a person's you know homophobic or racist, sexist, you have to speak up and you have to stop it. In those moments, you don't say, well, everybody has a right to say what they want. In a community, there are certain things you don't have a right to. But generally, um, I think people have to decide for themselves. But what I would say is, I think a lot of our communication structures and a lot of our professional development systems are dehumanizing in the sense that they don't involve the voice of the person who's involved we don't really listen to people we we kind of bully people a little bit in our, our systems and and i think i really believe that we'll have better lives if we if we're really if we stop trying to have control and we start to work more in partnership and so partnership to me is really about i don't think i'm better than the other person i want to hear what they have to say I think they should have a lot of control over what they do. Now, that doesn't mean everything's up for grabs. You can do whatever you want. You can't say, I drink, you know, I teach better if I've had a few drinks before I teach. I'm going to put a little cooler in my classroom. That's probably not going to work. Some things you can't do, but a large degree of autonomy and that our conversation should be grounded in an attitude of benevolence. And, and I'm open to being changed by humility and I communicate that I see your strengths. I, I think when those things are happening, we'll be in better shape as people you know, when we, we treat each other with respect. So, so I would say I personally believe that um, the world would be a better place if we have an attitude of humility and openness and benevolence towards others. But I don't want to force it either because then I would be doing the very thing I'm trying not to do. I think everybody has to come to their own conclusions
1: about how these things work, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, so how can schools better support this more humanizing view of coaching that you're talking about? Are there a few tips you have for school leaders? Well,
0: the first thing is I think is the coach, an instructional coach is a different job and it requires different knowledge. And so my book, the, I'm not trying to advertise the book here, but in the Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching, we identified seven variables. The beliefs, the way the person communicates, the way they lead. Uh, the second part is the conversational framework the impact cycle the instructional playbook which is a set of teaching practices and data so the coach needs to know those things and practice those things and then they work need to work in a context where they can flourish that's the seventh factor so if i am an instructional coach and i have never i don't have any time to coach i'm not going to have much impact so creating the conditions for the coach to succeed ensuring that they looked at who they are and what they do and they have the deep knowledge necessary to do it it's not going to happen in a you know, reading a book, and now I'm a coach, it is like learning how to teach or even something more sophisticated. It's, And the good news is, there's a lot of a lot of literature out there on how to be an effective coach. And So for me, that framework, those seven things are really important.
1: Jim, thanks for making the time to talk with us and for sharing your expertise. Really fascinating stuff, as always. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. To read Jim Knight's columns in Educational Leadership or to learn more about his books, go to www.ased.org.